The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. What's cool about using a non-realist device in a story is it it serves as a kind of propeller. It's propulsive for a story because if you have a conceit, when I talk to students about this, I kind of talk about like a snowball effect. Like you change one variable in reality and then it rolls and it rolls down the hill. And as the the conceit rolls down the hill, it gathers more and more mass and Uh meaning amasses. And that's, what I think a magical realist device can do. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you prolificness, prosperity, and peace of mind per usual. Award-winning short story writer and debut novelist Sanjana Southian talked to me about the true cost of the American dream, magical realism, and working with Mindy Kaling on the adaptation of her debut novel. Sunjana is an Iowa Writers Workshop grad who started her career as a journalist and reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco. She's had nonfiction bylines in The New Yorker, New York Times, Food and Wine, The Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle, and more. Her debut novel is Gold Diggers and is described as a magical realist coming-of-age story about Indian American identity, community, and the underside of ambition. Already a Good Morning America buzz pick, New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and a Vox Book Club pick. Number one best-selling author of Little Fires Everywhere, Celeste Ng said of the book, dizzyingly original, fiercely funny, and deeply wise. In this file, Sanjana and I discussed skewering myths of the model minority, the literary legacies of Indian translators, and magical realism. How Mindy Killing is approaching the TV adaptation of Gold Diggers, the writing life, an antidote to narcissism and the definition of vomit drafter. Stay calm and write on. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple podcasts to help other writers find us. Yes, we are back on The Writer Files, and I am honored today to be joined by a very special guest, and I'm praying that I say your name properly. Sanjana Sathian, welcome to the show. Thank you, and that was perfect. Thank you for getting my name right. (laughs) Okay. Well, kudos to your publicity folks uh, for sending (laughs) my pronunciation. Um, Yeah, so you've been talking about uh, this fantastic new book, like, all day long. How's the, uh, the virtual 
tour going? It's going well. It's been really cool to connect with so many people who just read so carefully. Um, you know, despite the pandemic, it's <laughs> people people are around, people are reading and they're passionate. It's just great. Yeah, yeah. Um, does it seem like there's kind of a renaissance right now, especially for like debut authors and and you know, authors of color? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, someone was talking to me the other day about how she thinks Instagram is responsible because the book as object is sexy again. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's what it is. I think <laughs> um, for various reasons in the last couple of years, um, you know, I think there's been particularly an appetite to see the kinds of stories that haven't existed in American literature before. Obviously, we don't want to read authors of color as, you know, like manuals for anti-racism. But I think if people are coming to my work and the work of other authors of color with a real appetite just for narrative, then it's 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 all good. It's really exciting to be in, in that kind of space. Um, well, it's exciting how well-received your debut novel has uh, been. And I want to talk more about Gold Diggers, but let's roll the clock back. Um, and talk about your, your superhero origin story, because, um, you know, you've got this fantastic background in journalism. I mean, the fact that you were a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with all this great nonfiction work under your belt, how did you end up at, um, you know, Iowa and then, you know, this fantastic creative writing community and talk about, you know, how you came to fiction as kind of the best medium you know, to tell your story or this story. For sure. Yeah. I mean, fiction was always, always, always my first love. I was a reader first. Um, I remember, you know, being chastised on the playground in second grade for reading my mother's hand-me-down Enid Blyton British boarding school novels instead wow. of playing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, literature for me was, it was actually honestly the way I came to understand America as like the daughter of immigrants. I took this class my senior year of high school called American Studies. And I, I don't think I understood like the mythologies that Americans tell themselves, um, tell ourselves until I took this class and we read Whitman and we read Toni Morrison and we read Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men and The Awakening. And that was the way I came to understand this country. And so that was what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of be a part of what my English teacher at the time, very cheesily, but kind of wonderfully called the river of American voices. Um, mm. uh, but in college, um, the, the first semester, I think I was there, um, I didn't get into a fiction class, but there was a nonfiction class I could take. And for the next couple of years, I kept not getting into fiction classes, but getting into nonfiction classes. And I was like, well, maybe I could do journalism. Um, I was not a great journalist. I was a fine journalist. Um, I liked the writing more. I found reporting kind of tiring. Um, even though I'm an extrovert, like it took all of my energy. But I, I really appreciated journalism putting me in contact with the world. And I'm, I'm sure this is something you identify with interviewing so many people is just you get kind of a, a fast track look into other people's lives and brains mm. and kind of mm -hmm. the logics that drive them. And that's a wonderful thing that journalism provides. It also is an antidote to narcissism. It gets you out of mm. your head. Um, you know, it makes it not just about you. And so when I did finally go to grad school, it was after five years of working in journalism. It meant that I was 
finally getting to do the thing that I'd always wanted to do. And it also meant I really appreciated it. I appreciated a grad school program telling me your only job right now is to write. I was able to make use of those two years in grad school because I had done a job that was a nice job, but was not the thing I wanted to be doing. And so whenever people talk to me about like, should I get an MFA? Should I not? I always say, go when you really need it. Um, not just to go. Yeah. Do you have some, um, fond memories and experiences that kind of, uh, stuck with you from that time? From the Iowa years? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's such a weird place. It's a wonderful and weird place. Um, (laughs) I mean, Iowa City is the smallest place I've ever lived. Um, I moved from a city of 21 million Mumbai to a state of 3 million. Um, And uh, Iowa was great for a lot of reasons for me. I I don't know that everyone has this experience, but I showed up again, as I said, kind of ready to make use of the time. Um, ready to set up a routine that was just all about my writing. And um, I I was able to approach it as, you know, I was going to learn about process. I was going to learn how to talk about writing, but I didn't expect anyone to like teach me how to do it. Um, I understood, I think that like implicitly maybe that it was a place where like a writing life was going to happen from the inside out. And I think because I had that attitude like good stuff happened. I, Hmm. a lot of my growth happened sort of accidentally at the fringes, you know, there would be a stray comment in class and that would be useful from a really wise professor, but it would really sink in when my classmates and I went to the bar after class and started talking about it and it would take on new meaning. Here's Uh what professor X said in class about the pressure you have to place on your characters in scene. And then over the next few weeks, you're talking about it with a community of people and you see all the different ways scene can operate. So that was great. And I also was lucky enough to live with two other writers. I lived with a poet, Janelle Efiwat, and another novelist, Andrew Ridker, who had already published his first novel. And he taught me a lot um, just because he had only just been through it and became kind of like a writing partner. So as I was writing this book, as I was writing Gold Diggers, I talked through things with him and he talked through his work with me and that productive back and forth. I think there's a lot of, there's a picture of the writer as the solitary creature. Um, but we, we need each other. And I mean, I'm sure this is part of why you do this show is to have the conversations that can help unlock things. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot, especially like the notion that the writing life happens from the inside out because kind of at the margins, right? Yeah, you are kind of steeped and marinated in in those conversations, as you, as you put it, kind of, you know, between the courses and, and spending time with your peers and and uh, kind of getting a look inside different yeah. um, authors' process and brains and whatnot and uh, finding your own voice. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. 
The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. But yeah, um, I mean, there's so many questions I could ask <laughs> you and you know, Iowa that writer's workshop has such a rich, rich and very interesting history. We could talk about that, but I think maybe we'll, we'll keep going. So Celeste Eng, author of Little Fires Everywhere, said of the book, Gold Diggers takes a wincingly hilarious coming of age story, laces it with magical realism and a trace of satire and creates a world that's both achingly familiar and marvelously inventive. How do you feel about that uh, blurb? That's, that's pretty nice. I mean, that really sums it up too, doesn't it? It's a really, really, uh, kind of a sweet way to to put it and it's amazing i mean talk about celeste's work is i i um have admired it so much because she writes very like deeply american stories that also involve asian american characters but she hasn't she's found a way to kind of not be marginalized as just um the asian writer she writes these stories that are so universal and she's she's broken boundaries for the rest of us and obviously that is like beautiful and kind and generous praise um i think she just she read the novel really well as i hoped it would be read well um kudos on the work and it's been of course you know lauded and, and named the best book of uh april by bustle pop sugar entertainment weekly good morning america cnn the list goes on and on how are you feeling right now about <laughs> It's reception because that for a debut novel, that's pretty outstanding. Yeah, it's really, it's really surreal. Um, the the book came out last week, and I think I was just comatose over the weekend. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is it's it's truly it's the dream to have people read the book with attention. Um, I haven't felt like anyone's misunderstood it, which is just extraordinary. Like it seems like people are entering the book with good faith. They're feeling the things the characters feel. And they're also engaging with the themes intellectually and, and to have people's hearts and brains involved um, is is just what you want. Yeah. You know, I wanted to say, you know, and, and picking it up, I, I definitely like you're kind of immersed in this world and the language and everything. It really resonated with me of a time that I kind of remember from, my own youth also, but, um, you know, the clicks and the kind of the <laughs> pressures of, of, 
academia, you know, strive, striving for academia or underachieving, you know, kind of <laughs> being a lazy academic, <laughs> if you will. But, um, yeah, um, I don't know. I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit about how you decided to use magical realism to, I don't know if it's emphasize or, you know, cause there's some foreshadowing the book kind of right out of the gates. And obviously we don't want to do any spoilers, but talk about how you, how you came to, to, or, you know, wh what was the decision where you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use magical realism as a, as a kind of a, um, I don't know. I don't, how would you describe it? Yeah. I mean, there's a magical realist conceit or device at the heart of the book is, is how I think of it. I, wrote almost exclusively realism until my mid-20s. And my work was just getting really stale. I wasn't enjoying it that much. And my reading tastes changed. I started reading like a lot of George Saunders and Kelly Link and then kind of weird realists like Miranda July. Um, mm. You know, I found that I could always sink into a Murakami novel and, you know, I, I had always loved Rushdie and magical realists like Latin Americanists, um, Latin American writers like Julio Cortazar. And that stuff just sort of came back at me in full force in my mid-20s. And I was like, what's cool about using a non-realist device in a story is it it serves as a kind of propeller. It's propulsive for a story because if you have a conceit when I talk to students about this, I kind of talk about like a snowball effect, like you change one variable in reality and then it rolls and it rolls down the hill. And as the, the conceit rolls down the hill, it gathers more and more mass and uh -huh. meaning and masses. And that's what I think a magical realist device can do. And so the book is like, it has a socially realist landscape, you know, it's about a friendship um, between two teenagers and, you know, it, picks up and follows them again in their 20s. It's about this kind of like immigrant world. Um, but ultimately, the the thing that pushes the story forward is this magical realist device. Um, you know, a mother and a daughter are stealing gold, and then what they do with that gold is magical. Um, and once I decided, okay, there are going to be gold thefts. Okay, there's going to be magic. Okay, there are consequences to magic. Magic changes the social and moral landscape of the novel and so you have to take follow-up steps and then all of a sudden you have a plot and the whole thing can hang off of a plot that's what i think it does yeah that's interesting that you describe it as kind of a snowball effect it's almost like when you see really good like improv or something <laughs> to that effect you know where kind of everything is speeding up but there are rules you know there are constraints yes. to even in improv you know and a lot of it is about saying yes as opposed to you know, kind of letting things grind to a halt. And, uh, that's, that's, I guess, part of that entropy piece comes in, but, uh, yeah, I love that analogy, but yeah. So yeah. Um, let's talk about kind of like your process and coming from this interesting lineage of, I, I understand that you have, uh, a part of your family that's done, that did, um, literary translation in India. And then of course, from, you know, kind of having that you know, as a reader and writer yourself as a journalist and then moving into fiction, talk a little bit about kind of now, you know, kind of how you've honed your process, how, what's your, you know, kind of what, like, what's your most prolific day as a, as a fiction writer? Mm. Yeah. I mean, right now I don't have a process at all because I'm just scrambled. Um, <laughs> but 
when I was writing Gold Diggers, um, you know, I was in grad school, which is just, it, it really was a boon for developing a process. Cause when I had a job, I just wrote when I could, I would write on like the train to work. I had like an hour long commute. Mm. So I would write on that. Um, I would write at night when I got home, I would take myself to, you know, I had to work basically six days a week, but on my one day off, I often didn't socialize. I would just drive. I was in the Bay area. I would drive across the golden gate bridge and get myself a hostel. Um, and right there, just like turn off my phone. Um, it was really bad for my social life. Um, (laughs) but in grad school, um, I mean, there was literally nothing else for me to do in Iowa, um, except read and write. Um, (laughs) and you know, I didn't go to very many parties. Tinder was bleak. So I woke up at like, you know, 8am, I got myself to my writing desk, um, by about nine. Sometimes I worked out before writing, sometimes after, and I would write from somewhere between like nine and 10 to about somewhere between one and 3 PM. And I generally tried to write about a thousand words a day when I was like in first draft mode. Um, but when I am editing, I can be at my desk for a lot longer. I can, you know, for, for structural revisions, for rewriting, for rebuilding, for rediscovering characters that I can do from, you know, maybe it's two hours a day, maybe it's like eight to 10 hours a day when I'm really in the swing of things. Um, I am a vomit drafter, so I really have to put (laughs) out a lot of work in order to find anything that will stick. Interesting. I haven't heard the term vomit drafter before. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I will again, but it's a first on this show. (laughs) Congratulations. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's cool. Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, I just go back to, you know, how many, how many great writing careers do you think are born because Tinder was bleak. <laughs> that sounds like the start Probably of, a, a lot. of a short story. But you're an award-winning short story writer too. Talk a little bit about, yeah, uh, maybe the difference between kind of some of your some of your short fiction and and then taking on a you know a longer piece. And you know, how, how many words was the first draft of uh, Gold Diggers? If you don't mind me asking. Oh sure. I mean, the first draft that I showed to my poor first four readers was I think 120 or 125,000 words. It is now, I think 93,000 words. Um, so lost a lot. I feel bad for those people who had to read early. (laughs) I mean, stories were, I'm glad I learned how to write short stories. Um, they, I realized at Iowa that they were not my most native form. Um, I think it's really useful to learn how to write them as their own end because you learn about structure you learn about how to create a beginning, middle, and end. You learn about how to give something an arc. I think that 
takes longer to figure out when you're only writing a novel length thing. But the consistent feedback I got in workshops and from my readers about my short fiction was that there was like too much happening in them that it was like, you've got all these ideas, you have all these characters, like, why are you cramming them into this short space? Um, Mm. And, you know, I definitely like writing a 5000 word short story, I think I did once and it was so hard. Um, most of my short stories are around like six, 7,000 words and getting them there is pretty difficult. I turned in an early draft of something with a gold conceit to a workshop in my first semester and it really didn't mm-hmm. land. It just didn't work. And it was actually kind of a brutal workshop. Um, but at the end of the class, the professor and my friend, Andrew, we're both like, you know what, like, this does not function as a short story. However, there is a conceit here, this stealing gold and drinking it thing is potentially very interesting. You have this interesting thing going on with a mother and a daughter who are gold thieves. Go, go forth with that. You know, Andrew said something like this could sustain half a Shabon novel. And I was like, oh, I like Shabon. Um, <laughs> and he was right. You know, I, I head hopped into the margins of that story into another character um, and discovered it. The The other thing that I think is cool about moving from short stories to novels is my short stories were very often conceit driven. Like it would be, okay, we've got this stolen gold or, you know, I sh- wrote a short story that's like a doppelganger short story. That's like, oh, two characters, both named Sanjana, but they're spelled differently. Um, uh, or, you know, a, a man turns into a stone. Like I had these like things that were tight conceits, but mm-hmm. A novel that also has a conceit has to develop a lot more character. And so having the space of a novel meant that I went from being sort of a conceit-driven writer to um, I let the conceit lead me to character. And now sometimes I have a choice. I can let character lead to I can let character lead me to conceit, or I can let conceit lead me to character. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. Um <laughs> pause the interview on it. No, um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, before we kind of, uh, wrap up with your pearls of wisdom for your fellow scribes. Yeah. I want to ask you a fun one that, that we ask everybody. Um, if you could choose one author from any era for a, an all expense paid dinner to your favorite restaurant in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? I might take Edith Wharton, or I might mm. take Zadie Smith. Um, I would I would consider Edith Wharton because she is so snarky and mean and brilliant, and she would just have the best probably people watching voice, and and you could be gossipy with her. Um, Zadie Smith is just one of my favorite writers, and you know mm. she like went to the Met Gala in this amazing dress, and I just think she's kind of fabulous. Um, uh, where would we? go i don't know there's there's this really fancy like gourmet indian restaurant in dc called rasa that i've always wanted to go to mm. um yeah or maybe i would try you know i never i never went to chez panisse that amazingly mm-hmm. famous alice waters restaurant so oh, maybe yeah. i would try that <laughs> excellent yeah well Alex must pitch, shouldn't you <laughs> go for it i think i'd like to be a fly on the wall for that one <laughs> Well, just made my mouth water, actually. But just going back to the book, we'll just um, plug it one more time. Gold Diggers follows the intertwining journeys of two Indian American families, first in the bush 
here at Atlanta suburbs, then in Silicon Valley. And of course, you know, you get into these th themes about uh, the cost of the American dream, of course. So there's, a, there's definitely a lot to dig into. And congratulations on the work. It's really, really awe-inspiring. Thank you so much. Thanks for the thoughtful questions. Of course, of course, we will point at sanjana.com. I'll drop the links to the book and all the places um, you're on Twitter as well. So uh, I'll drop a link to that. Anywhere else you want to connect with writers before we wrap up with your advice? No, that would be great. I'm not very good at Twitter, but, you know, help me get better there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, it seems like you're doing quite well. All right. Well, uh, yeah, your final uh, kind of um, wisdom on just how to keep going, you know, if you're an aspiring writer right now and, and you might not have the, the access or the, you know, or the chutzpah, uh, you know, how, how do we... How do we persevere, especially through times of kind of adversity like right now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think keep reading. That's been really helpful for me, just staying in touch with the reason we do this at all. Um, having a book that I'm excited to go to every single day gives me something to work towards and reminds me I want to make a book that people want to return to every day. And then I think yeah. just being patient with ourselves. It's okay that we didn't write King Lear during a pandemic or whatever it was that Shakespeare did. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's a perfect, perfect way to wrap up. Sanjana, we appreciate your time, your wisdom, your work. Um, congratulations, of course, on the to be, I, you know, I guess we didn't talk about it, but Mindy Kaling has uh, optioned the book for adaptation. How does that feel? Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, we are in really early stages and we're like interviewing showrunners, we're interviewing co-writers, but I do get to co-write the adaptation and it's very exciting to return to the material in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine a better place for it to land and, uh, yeah, we wish you the best of luck. Do come back and talk to us again in the future. Cause I'm sure that, uh, you have a, a bright, bright, uh, path ahead for this uh, career of yours. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.